Continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 4 today. The topic of that study is one that uh, everybody loves. So this is, this is a fun topic to, to talk about until you get down to the brass tacks of actually doing it. It's the topic of unity. Unity is a very popular thing. Everybody loves unity. It's fun to be on a baseball team that's all united and winning, isn't it? That's great. Or it's got fun to be on a work team and everything's going smoothly and you're all united in your efforts. That's a great thing. Everybody loves unity. Everybody's attracted to unity. In fact, if you look on the internet, they use that term unity for a lot of different businesses because it is so attractive. You, you read things like Unity Bank. There's a Unity Healthcare. Unity Homes. Unity Enclosures. <laughs> unity uh, Snowboards. Unity Hospice, Unity Center for Behavioral Health. There's even a town by the name of Unity in the state of Maine. And if you happen to be lucky enough to live there, you get free swimming lessons. If you don't live there, you've got to pay 10 bucks. <laughs> so, Unity is very popular, but, but I have this question then. If Unity is so popular and so good and everybody wants it, why don't we see very much of it as we look around our world today? We see disunity a lot of different places, don't we? There's a man by the name of uh, Ben Kachiaras. He's a pastor of Mountain Christian Church near Baltimore. His uh, daughter went to high school for the first time, and she came home the first day. He asked her how it was. She said, I saw my first fight today. So he said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, uh, there were two girls in the hallway. One of them grabbed the other's hair, pulled it down, and started giving her the business in the stomach. And, uh, and, the, and then they slammed into the lockers, and a crowd gathered around. And f- finally, uh, she said, uh, it was exciting, but it was scary. Uh, and then a teacher came and said, knock it off, guys. You know? and, then, and they stopped it. Later on that day, he was on a Christian blog just reading some of the comments on a Christian blog, and the uh, moderator of the blog had written something that was a little controversial, so there were a lot of comments, you know, below in the box where you can do the comments section, there were lots of comments back and forth about this, and it started to get a little heated, until finally somebody crossed the line. Instead of criticizing the content, they began to attack the character. Instead of, I disagree with you, it became, you're an idiot because you disagree with me. And then came this comment. Somebody posted this statement. Wow, you Christians are so stupid. I thought your Jesus was nicer than that. Did you catch those words? Your Jesus? He didn't want anything to do with that Jesus. If that's the kind of people that follow Jesus, I don't want anything to do with him, right? Unity makes such a... We're attracted to unity, but we hate disunity. You know, if, if I have a family that's a little wacky, you know, I got a, a brother-in-law who is, uh, you know, always uh, attacking people. If I have a, a, an aunt who's a little crazy and, you know, and, and uh, they, they don't get along and everything, and then I invite you to a family function, are you going to want to come? Ain't no way you want to come. You don't, you don't want to mess with all that. Unity is attractive. Disunity is very unattractive. In Ephesians, what we're going to look at in chapter 4 is this whole idea of unity. That's where the Apostle Paul goes. Now, you know that Ephesians from 
prior weeks being here, you know Ephesians is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 to 3, and then chapters 4 to 6. 1 to 3 is all about who we are in Christ. 4 to 6 is all about what we do, how we live that out in our lives. And maybe a better way to, I read an illustration one time that might help us remember all about that. It's a football illustration. So what I'll do is maybe say that uh, the Philadelphia Eagles are on the field and they're on offense. And so they get in the huddle and Carson Wentz calls a play. And after he calls the play, all the guys stand up and they applaud and they say, Carson, you're the best play caller in America. That was really, really great. And then they all go back to the bench. (laughs) Maybe that's the way they used to play in a few years ago. I don't know. But uh, at, at any rate, now they're doing much better. And then they come back on the field again and uh, they get in the huddle again and Carson Wentz calls another play. Maybe this time it's the Philly special. You know that, that great Super Bowl play that he, that he called? And, and so after he calls the play, they all stand up and they, and, and they clap again. And one guy says, man, you gave me goosebumps when you called the play that time. You must be the best play caller in America. I think we ought to podcast that play, right? And then they go back to the bench. You're going to say after a while, come on, guys, run the play. That's what you're here for. Run the play. In Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul lays out the plays. He explains the meat of the plays. Chapters 4 to 6, run the play. That's what he's telling us to do. And the very first play he tells us to run is that of unity. Unity. How can you be united? That's why I put in your main idea here. Paul is telling us in this passage, live in unity. The question is, how do we do that? Paul's going to answer that for us three ways. First, he's going to say, live worthy of your calling. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Secondly, he's going to tell us to use what God has provided for us. And then finally, he's going to tell us to grow up in our relationships. But why don't we ask God to help us understand these things and be able to apply them first. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you, Father, for the chance to look at your word. And uh, God, today... We recognize that what's written here is really um, impossible for us to put into practice apart from your Spirit helping us understand and then to practice what we see. So, would you please send him to each of our hearts, speaking inside of us. He's uh, he's in us if if we trusted him as Savior, so help us hear him and then be able to do what we hear. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so point number one, live worthy of your calling. I see that in verses 1 to 6. Let's read that. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I I need to make something clear. That first line where he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Uh, He's not telling us to earn our salvation. In other words, we don't 
uh, walk worthy enough to the point that now God has to reward us with salvation. He's not saying that at all. Let me explain what he is saying. And let me use a little visual aid here to help us understand that. Everybody knows what this is, right? This is a balance scale, right? All right. The reason I have that here is because the word worthy that the Apostle Paul uses in this passage is literally translated equal balance. Equal balance. What the Apostle Paul is telling us to do here is to take all that Christ has done for us in chapters 1 and 3 and put it on one side of the balance. He has done this for us. This is who we are in Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, he tells us we are saved. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by that Holy Spirit. We're everything that he wants us to be. We're chosen to be blameless. We're adopted into God's family. We're redeemed and forgiven. We're given the riches of his grace and we're given an inheritance in heaven. All of those things are who we are. That's on this side of the scale. The fixed weight is here. That won't change. That's been done. Nothing more needs to be done or can be done. That's who we are. Now the Apostle Paul in this section of this chapter is telling us, Live in a way that matches that. Balance it out. Live that. If you don't do that, it's hypocrisy, right? Because you aren't living who you really are. If you're in Christ, then we ought to live in a way that reflects who that is. And the very first way he tells us to do that is by being united, being together. How do we do that? How do we live in that way? Well, he gives us three words here. There are three virtues that need to be part of our lives. Look at what they are. He says, live worthy of the calling with all humility, gentleness, and patience. And we all know what humility is, right? I like what uh, Romans 12.3 says. Not to think more highly than you ought to think of yourselves, but to think with sober judgment. Or Philippians 2.3, count others as more significant than yourselves. Humility is outward focused. Does that make sense? It's outward focused. It's like looking outward through a window instead of into a mirror. When you look through a window, you're trying to see who else you can help, what you can do to help somebody else. And if you're looking outward and you you look in a mirror, everything flows through you. So it's an outward, you hardly even think of yourself if you're a humble person. And the second word he uses is gentleness. The second virtue is gentleness. And, and I don't really like that translation very well. I actually like the, um, the King James translation a little better. It says meekness. And the reason that's so is because the word that's really used there encompasses so much more than gentleness. In fact, I once read a, a 10-page paper on meekness. There's that much contained in it. But let me summarize it maybe in three S words, three words that begin with the letter S that'll help us understand what true meekness is. Number one, the first S word is submission to God's uh, plan for your life. Submission to God's plan. The second S word is softness toward other people. You're gentle with other people. That's why he that's why the one translation uses the word gentle. 
But then the third uh, S word is strong. Strong against evil. If you think about Moses in the Old Testament, he is said in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, to be the meekest man on earth. Think about Moses. Moses was very much submissive to God's plan. Everything God told him, where you take the children of Israel, when you get up, when you don't, he followed it. Very submissive to God's plan. He was um, soft toward other people. He, he would uh, talk and, and work with other people. But he was also very strong against evil. And so when the children of Israel were worshiping the golden calf, he had no problem uh, exercising judgment on those thousands of people that he stood up against because they failed to worship the true God. So meekness... Although sometimes we get the idea it's a very weak and mousy kind of term, you know, somebody that can't stand up for himself kind of thing. That's not so at all, is it? Softness is contained in it, but it can be very, very strong. So humility, meekness, and then patience. We all know what patience is. And then he lists the manner in which we're to exhibit these virtues. He says... Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That phrase I also like the translation of the King James Version where it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of this Spirit. I like that word endeavoring because it indicates the idea of exertion. It takes some kind of action. If you don't do anything, you're not going to keep the unity. It takes work. So, endeavoring. It's a work. It's hard work to keep the unity. And then he noticed that he uses the word keep the unity, not make the unity. That's because the unity was already created for us when Christ died on the cross. He made the Jew and the Gentile one. He made you, as a, as a, a sinner who comes to Christ through faith, one with God. And he made us one together. It's been done. Now all we have to do is keep the unity that's already there. And believe me, that can be an endeavor. We'll see more about that in just a moment. Now, recognizing all of these things, um, well, let's look at it this way. The next portion of Scripture that he goes to is uh, actually he starts focusing on the Godhead. The reason uh, unity is so important to God is because God is a unity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are a unity. So if we are not united, we are casting a false picture of who God is. Now, they each have different jobs. You know, God the Father is said to be the Creator. God the Son is the Redeemer. God the Holy Spirit is the Sanctifier, the one who sets apart. Yet they perform these roles in cooperation with each other, and they help each other, and they enjoy and love each other. You look through the Scriptures, you see this over and over again, how they're helping each other, doing what they... Can you imagine what it would be like if they were not united? Imagine what creation, for instance would look like. You go out into the woods at a pond and you see all the beauty with the birds flying through the trees and the butterflies. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight. If they weren't united, what would that look like? I'm not sure, but I I don't think I'd want to be there. Think about God the Son. He was to go to the cross to die for our sins. 
But he didn't really want to do that, you remember. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he did it. That S word, submitted to God's plan, that's what he did. In fact, he did all of those S words, all of those three virtues that we talked about. Jesus humbled himself in Philippians 2. Jesus was meek, Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you. I am meek and lowly. And he submitted to God's plan, was soft toward other people, but strong against evil. And Jesus was patient and long-suffering. In John 2, he said, my hour has not yet come. He was patient, waiting for God's timing. So we need those three virtues in our lives, don't we? There's one major thing that can block all of this. It can block unity in an instant. And it's just a little tiny word with two letters. It's the word me. Would you say that with me? The word me. Let's say it again. Me. There is one roadblock to unity that will block it every time, and the word is me. I like myself too much. I want to be respected. I watch out for me constantly. I take better care of me maybe than I should. I want to be understood. I want to be heard. I want to be loved and appreciated. I want to be right. I want to get things done. After all, God wants things done too. And God has given me these things to do, so I have the right then to run all over everybody in order to get them done. God wants them done, right? And so we go ahead and do that. The Apostle Paul in this passage says, we must give up our rights. We must give up our power give up our positions and our arguments. But often we do the opposite. We dig in and we're not going to move because we know we're right. And it can be tragic. We'd often rather give up a relationship than give up these things that really have no significance at all. We need to be set free from ourselves. Unity will never happen until I'm able to remove me. I really wanted to give you some quotes out of this book, which I don't have time to do, so I'm just going to mention the book to you. It's called The End of Me by Kyle Eidelman. Um, He's uh, one of the teaching pastors at a church where uh, one of the guys who spoke in our church here not too long ago, one of uh, Marty's good friends is down in Kentucky. So uh, I would suggest if you're struggling in that area, read that book. It's a tremendous read. He's a great writer, and you'll enjoy it. Matthew 16.25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We've got to take care of me and get it out of the way, or there will not be unity. So, live worthy of your calling. Balance how you live, really, against all that Christ has done to you. They should be equal in weight. Secondly, he says, to gain unity, use what God has given you. And I see that beginning in verse 7. 
It says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice that last phrase, the unity of the faith. These spiritual gifts are given to create unity among us. Unity. And notice he says these gifts are given to individuals, and then those gifted individuals are given to the church to equip all the saints so they can go do the ministry. In other words, it's not the evangelist, the apostle, the shepherd, and the teacher who do the ministry. It's the people. And he uses a quote here from Psalm 68. You know, in those days, a victor of a battle would give gifts to those associated with him. And all these verses are saying is that Jesus won the battle over death and then gave gifts to believers, those who had been captive to sin but now set free, after, and he did this when, after he uh, descended into the tomb and rose to be with God in heaven. So he's talking about spiritual gifts here. Now, what is a spiritual gift? I know many of you know this, and so, uh, but for, for those of you who don't, a spiritual gift is simply an ability that God gives to an individual to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. So we all grow. We mature in Christ. How do we discover and develop our gifts? Well, there are a number of inventories or tests, like multiple choice things that you can take online and so on, but they're not really the best way to do it. I like what J.D. Greer says. J.D. Greer is a Southern Baptist leader, and uh, he's a pastor now, but um, shortly after he was married, he and his wife took uh, some of these spiritual test inventories, and uh, his wife's came back and told her that she had the gift of celibacy. He didn't think too much of that. So he says there's a much better way, and I agree with him. I I like what he says, and he says what many other people say. It's like three circles, he says. And and each circle could be labeled with an A word. You have ability. Take your ability, and then add to that your... Well, he uses the word affinity. It's really your passion. And and then look at the affirmations that you have from other people as to what you're good at and how you function in a group. And when you put those three circles together, where they intersect is probably your sweet spot, which is a good place to serve. Now, that presupposes something. That presupposes that you're with other people. And so... It's going to be pretty hard to find your spiritual gift or use your spiritual gift if you aren't in, let's say, a small group where people know you and you know them and you help each other with this and you serve each other using these gifts. That's what it's designed for so that you can all become one in Christ. So it's really important to be part of a small group like that. Um, Why is it crucial to know and use your gifts, because it really is. 
It's crucial for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's hard... Or, uh, let me back up. When God created you, He made you in a very unique way. You're one of a kind. You have your own personality. You have your own way of approaching things. You have your own thought processes. And you have your own unique spiritual gift. That combination is unique to you. You're going to touch other people in a way that no other person can touch them. If you're not doing it, it's not going to get done that way. It is crucial for you to know your gift and to use it on someone else. Another reason why it's crucial is because if you don't, you're going to miss out on the fulfillment of serving in a way that really is exhilarating and really gets your motor going and gives you satisfaction and fulfillment. You need to do that. And a third reason is because if you're not using your gift, you're not working toward the unity that God's intending us to work toward. You're not part of God's plan. The unity will suffer if you're not doing that. So we need to know our gifts and get busy. These are things that God gives us to help us keep the unity of the faith. So we live worthy of our calling. We use what God has given to us. And now thirdly, we grow up in our relationships. And I see that in verses uh, 12 to 16. Because we're running a little late on time, I think I'm going to just skip over these verses. You can read them in your Bible. And I just want to focus on four phrases that come out of these verses from verses 12 to 16. He uses the terms mature manhood. He uses the term no longer be children. He uses the terms grow up in every way. And he uses the terms, make the body grow. And that's the whole thing. We're supposed to become adults, mature, so that we become Christ-like. In verses 12 to 13, he uses the phrase, grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You've got to be like Christ. Grow up in that. Verse 14, the next verse, he talks about stability. Don't be tossed about by everything that comes along. Be stable. That's what adults are, supposed to be anyway. Stable, right? When you're a child, what does a child do? A child will follow his feelings. I feel sad, I'm going to cry. I want that toy, I'm going to go grab it. I want that candy. I'm going after it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to keep uh, hollering at mom and dad until they give it to me, right? I'm going to get what I want. That's how a child operates. He has no control over himself. An adult shouldn't live that way. And yet, sometimes we do, don't we? We act like children, and that breaks the unity. Grow up, he says, in your relationships. Learn how to control yourself. Then he goes on to verse 15 and says, Speaking the truth in love. We're to speak the truth in love. Those two things sometimes don't really seem like they fit together, do they? Truth and love. Truth can hurt people. That doesn't seem loving. Uh, someone once said, Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. 
And then there's an aspect of love that often we forget about completely. It's just completely off our radar and we don't think about it at all. But Mr. Rogers had it right. That's almost scripture, right, Mr. Rogers? All right. Here's what he said. Listening is where love begins. Listening is where love begins. If we're going to speak the truth in love, doesn't it follow we ought to listen so we know what truth needs to be spoken? Without listening, we may not know what needs to be spoken. Real love listens. Real love searches it out. It asks questions like these. Tell me more. I don't quite understand. It asks, what happened to cause you to think that way? What led you to this conclusion? Have you had some experiences that led you to this perspective? Help me to understand. Would you please? Before we start pounding people with truth, we need to know where they're at. And love listens not just to words, but it listens to emotions. It listens to body language. Even large companies are now realizing how important it is. Not long ago, I watched a special on the ABC TV affiliate. They had a special program on what they called EQ. We all know what IQ is, right? Intelligence quotient. EQ, they said, is emotional intelligence. And they went on to say how uh, huge corporations are spending millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to bring in consultants to teach their people about these things that we're talking about here today. How to listen, how to read body language, how to understand emotions and where people are at so that you can communicate better so that, bottom line, what they're after is unity. Between buyers, sellers, between what, whatever, they're looking for unity. Why didn't they go back and talk to the Apostle Paul? Cost a lot less. You see, even secular business recognizes the significance of listening. In the body of Christ, we ought to be doubly good at that. All you, uh, no doubt, are aware of a company by the name of Hobby Lobby. And uh, I guess this would be a good time for a brazen uh, advertisement. Uh, Come August, August 9th at 1 p.m. in the Fellowship Center, uh, Sage Builders is going to sponsor, well, we have a, it's going to be called a movie day, but what we're going to show are some videos all about Hobby Lobby. This is a company that is owned and run by Christians. It started by mom and dad, uh, two sons, and ten grandkids, all believers, all in unity, 30,000 employees, 1,200 stores nationwide. It's an amazing, amazing operation. And it's so encouraging, the story. We'll go through the Supreme Court uh, case that they had a few years back. The whole thing is explained. Just a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. So I invite you to come to that. It'll be in the bulletin. You can check it out. The reason I bring it up now is because there was an incident in Hobby Lobby where they listened. 30,000 employees, they listened to one. This woman was not eating in the lunchroom with the other workers. So her supervisor went to her and said, how come you don't eat with us? We'd love, really love to have you there. We miss you. 
She said, well, I don't eat there because I'm Muslim and you don't serve the kind of food that I can eat. He said to her, well, I want you to know this is the last day that you will ever have to worry about that again. Starting tomorrow, we will have your food in that lunchroom. Now I ask you, what do you think that said to that woman? That said to her, they care. They're interested in me. Simple listening and responding is a powerful thing. Simple listening and responding brings unity. Do you think she would talk against Hobby Lobby? Ain't no way. In fact, in that series of videos, what you'll find is that uh, David Green, the, fa- the founder, said, we didn't intend for this to be a business model. We just wanted to treat people the way Christ treats people. And it turns out it's the best business model we could have had. Our profitability jumped through the roof because we're caring for people. We're trying to do what Christ said. We're building unity. Um, a number of our people here use a book called How We Love by Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. Uh, they're marital counselors, husband and wife counseling team. They use something and they tell about it in this book called The Comfort Circle. And all it is is a pattern, a way of helping couples in marriages to be able to listen, to understand, and to develop a close bond of peace between them. And it works. It, 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 you know, when you listen in this way and you gain understanding in this way, it develops trust. It develops a sense of being cared for. It develops a sense of security. Something that all marriages need. And, and it, does, it can be applied not just in marriages... It can be applied in your small group. It can be applied in your home with your kids. It can be applied in your workplace. These are universal principles that build unity. They have tremendous success in building unity. Neil Anderson is a founder uh, of a ministry called Freedom in Christ Ministries. He... uh, he had been a pastor. He had been an aeronautical engineer before the, the Lord called him and uh, saved him, and he, he went to seminary and so on, so on. Well, when he was a pastor, he had a woman come to him, and she said, I need to talk to you, Neil. So they made an appointment. They showed up in his office. She sat down, and she had brought two lists with her. The one list was a list of all his good points, and the other list was a list of all his bad points. There were two items on his good list and a whole sheet of his bad. She starts reading through them. He said, I was so tempted to defend myself, to explain, because she was misunderstanding some things, and there was, you know, you know how it goes. But he said, God gave me the grace to be quiet, to keep my mouth shut, and I did. And one by one, she's reading through all of these things that he's doing wrong. She got to the end of the list. And he looked at her and he said, You know, it must have taken a lot of courage to share that list with me. You've obviously given a lot of thought to this. So what do you suggest I do now? Like, where do I start? Because he answered in such a humble meek way 
it allowed the Spirit room to come in and start working on her heart. Until the end of that meeting, she was in tears saying, Oh, Neil, the problem is not with you. The problem is with me. And he was able to minister to her heart, help build her back up. And Christ was glorified and unity was maintained. Isn't that beautiful? That's the way it's supposed to work. That's how speaking the truth in love works. That's how listening can help us when we have those three virtues. Humility and patience and meekness. They do wonders. They promote such unity. Well, I want to end our sermon here today with a couple of verses out of John 13, or John 17. It's a prayer. Jesus is praying for the disciples that were with him then, as well as for the disciples who would come later on, including you and me. So, as you hear this prayer, this is Jesus praying for you. I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those disciples who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I want you to notice three times in this passage, Jesus' prayer is that we would all be one. And then he twice explains why, so that the world may believe in Jesus and know that he's really God. Now, I want you to think about the context. Where did Jesus pray that? He's at the Last Supper. He's just served the bread and the cup. He's just told them that he's going to go be with his Father. He's just told them he's going to prepare a place for them. This is the last prayer he has with his disciples. These are his last words. He's going to be killed. The last chance he has to talk to them in this way. And what does he pray for? Unity. Think about that. Weren't there other more important things? Why didn't he pray, for instance, that God would protect them from Satan's onslaught, from the evil one, because he knows the evil one's going to come after him? He didn't do that. Why didn't he pray for protection from the evil Roman government? Because he knew they were coming. He didn't do that either. Why didn't he pray that God's power would be on them so they could evangelize the entire world? After all, that's why Jesus came, right? He didn't do that either. What was the most important thing on Jesus' mind? They must be one. Unity. Did you realize Jesus and God put such a high priority on unity. It's something that we don't often stop to think about. Jesus was really saying, you can have the best outreach programs at your church possible, but without unity, they will fall short. You can have the best discipleship programs imaginable, but without unity, they will lack power. You can, in your home, use the best parenting principles possible. You can have the best intentions. You can do everything right, but without unity, you're going to fall short. 
Unity is key. In unity is where the power is. I could give you example after example. I'm sorry, I get a little passionate. Partly because when I was in college, I'll just, I can't tell you the whole story. We don't have time for this. But I had an experience. I was interning, kind of like uh, interning in a church. And for half of that year, I disrupted the unity. I was a college kid who knew all this new information, and I'm going to put it all into practice. You know, I'm gung-ho for the, for the glory of God. <laughs> and then the second half of the year, God came to me and spoke to me and said, you're messing up, kid. I don't care if you have the best program possible. If you don't go there together, it's not worth going there at all. And that second half of the year was a whole different mood in that church. People loved to come. It was fun to be there because unity was restored. I could tell you story after story. There's a church in St. Louis that I know of. They were ready to fold. They were meeting in a movie theater. They figured it was going to be their last day. The people who were left, it had gradually dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. There was hardly anybody there anymore. They all got up on the stage and they sat down there and they were going to close down the church. And God did a work that morning humbled some people. They began to share what each other meant to each other. And it was a turning point in that church. You know that same church did keep going. It is now a multi-site church with so many people you can hardly count them. Unity has power. Unity of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, that kind of unity has great, great power. So what do you do? I want to challenge you to think about this, to think about being humble, to think about being meek, to think about being patient. Maybe you need to read this book, The End of Me by Kyle Eidelman. Maybe that'll help you get there because without that, we're not going to have unity like we could. So I encourage you, go that route. Follow what God's telling you. Get your spiritual gifts. Know what they are. Use them so it'll create unity. And then finally, grow up in God. And if you need help with any of that, you need help finding your spiritual gifts, stop back in the guest services room. Uh, Doug Bazigian would be happy to help you with that. Or talk to one of our prayer team. They'll be up here afterwards. They can direct you to the right place. Don't just sit and let it go. Remember, the Apostle Paul has given us the play. He's shown us the plays in Ephesians 1 through 3. Now it's time to run the plays. Will you do that? Will you do that with me? With all of us here together, let's pray. God, thank you for what you've shown us here in Ephesians. I pray, God, as we go from this place, you'll help us be Christ-like people who work hard at maintaining the unity because it doesn't happen by itself. Speak to each of our hearts. Challenge us. Prick our consciences when too much of ourselves gets in the way. Like Jesus, who gave up his plans to follow the Father's plans. That's what we need to do, dear Lord. Help us be able to do that. God, I pray your blessing would be upon us. I pray for each home that's represented here. May there be unity. I pray for each small group. May there be unity. I pray for our entire church that there would be unity.
Lord, I know within ourselves you've given us free will. And we have the power to stop Jesus' prayer for unity from actually happening. Don't want to get into theological debates, but you've given us free will and it's our choice. Help us to choose you. That's where the joy is. That's where the fulfillment. Being part of a team that's united and that can't lose. Praise your name for what you've done on the cross to bring unity to us. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.